In today's world, technology is everywhere. From the entertainment we consume, to the content we create, and the data that we distribute. Here at The Edge, we explore how the discoveries of today and the innovations of tomorrow shape and evolve the way we go about our everyday lives. Let's dream a world where your imagination is your only limitation. Let's open the curtain, peer into the future, and see what's waiting for us. Are you ready? Welcome, everybody, to The Edge, a TMG Core production. I'm Drew Null. And I'm Brad Furnish. And today we have a very special guest with us. Mr. Adam Leslie is an experienced former Australian national security professional, army officer, and currently CEO of Leavenhall. Leavenhall is a commercial intelligence advisory company based in Silicon Valley, California. At Leavenhall, Adam leads a team of former intelligence and defense professionals to seek out unconventional and disruptive national security related technology. Leavenhall advises these companies on investment options, structural design, and expansion through global business development. They also work with VCs in the USA and overseas to bring national security related deal flow and to mentor their portfolio companies for intelligence use cases. So Adam, thanks so much for your time and uh, for being on with us today. My pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. So Adam, one of the things that we ask all of our guests um, as a bit of an icebreaker uh, when they come on is if you could briefly share with our listeners um, the most unexpected turn in your career. And that could either be, um, you know, a, a, a positive turn an unexpected thing that happened in your career or, you know, something that we would maybe, you know, consider more of a character building moment, if you will. And it doesn't have to be a really long drawn out thing. Just a, a little nugget for our, uh, our listeners kind of learn a little bit more about you. Yeah, of course. Um, no, that's a good one. And, and there's plenty of them. <laughs> you know, you have, you have turns and twists in your career and, and your life that, uh, that shape you and, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a little while now. Um, uh, let me just think. The most recent significant one uh, is a personal one tied to a career one. So I finished off my career with the Australian government um, in Dubai. I was posted to Dubai uh, and I was uh, in charge of uh, what we call the Office of Regional Affairs, um, which had essentially look on Africa and, you know, we're working a whole bunch of of different issues. Uh, but while I was there, I, um, I, uh, met and, uh, and then married an American girl who, um, was, uh, was, uh, working in the CIA at the time. Um, and, uh, essentially our postings didn't match. So she ended up, um, leaving the agency to stay with me. Uh, then she got a job in Silicon Valley, uh, in Tesla. Um, and, uh, so I, which I think was a fair quid pro quo, uh, decided to <laughs> decided that it would be uh, it would be a good thing to follow my heart and, and you know ended up in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, and that, and that really was the start of the the sort of major pivot uh, in my life, which led me down this innovation path. Um, because we started, I, I built a business here um, with some former agency uh, colleagues, uh, former Marine. Uh, I've got a fellow in Australia who was a, a classmate of mine who was an army officer and a diplomat also. Um, and it was being in Silicon Valley and seeing the technology that was that's here and the innovation culture that is here in the US, which is very different from Australia, uh, very different from anywhere else I've experienced. And seeing that technology and saying and thinking, and all of us actually as a team thinking, you know, we need this technology um, in our former professions, we need we need to be able to find ways to get it from where it sits 
to uh, where it needs to be. Um, that's yeah. cool. So that's that was the, the, the it's been a massive uh, massive change, but a really good one. Sure. Really yeah. No, that's one. awesome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think you you probably you know finding your wife you can't you absolutely have to <laughs> say that has been the most positive change in your life, well, right? Yeah, it, it really has. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I would hope so. <laughs> um, so I I really want to dig into to to Leavenhall and what you guys are doing there. Uh, but before that, I know uh, you, you you've had a past life before Leavenhall in you know. Uh, intelligence agencies you were you know in the military in in australia can, and i don't know how much of that you can dig into can you just give us a brief kind of background take us from you know starting out in the military how you worked your you know way through there and then how you got into intelligence in australia is that however much you can share with us would be really yeah, awesome. sure look um so i started off straight out of the university i actually straight out of high school joined the military i went to Australian version of West Point, which is called the Australian Army, which enrolled in college. Uh, I then uh, did pilot's course and became a, a helicopter pilot. Uh, flew Huey gunships, which is uh, <laughs> uh, something out of the uh, out of the seventies. It was, it was a magic aircraft to fly. It was like flying a Harley Davidson. A really terrific aircraft. Um, That's awesome. Uh, but it, it was designed before ergonomics was a word. So, uh, it, uh, you know, really, uh, still got back issues from that. But anyways, um, I, um, transitioned from flying into the army intelligence court where I was an intelligence officer, um, there initially working in aviation, uh, aviation and intelligence and air intelligence. Um, so I did air force training, I did army training, uh, and then found myself posted to the defense intelligence organization. Uh, in Canberra, um, where I was doing uh, counterintelligence um, planning uh, initially for the um, war in Iraq in 2003. So, winding you back a bit. Um, at, uh, at that point, I actually did a deployment to Iraq early on. That was a bit of a short one, but uh, got over there nonetheless. Um, and then I transitioned to uh, the national security community in Australia, um, where I was focused on initially on military um, uh, and support to the military. And so I went back to Iraq, uh, this time in, you know, instead of in uniform, in, I went in khakis and, and contractor rig. Um, uh, so I had postings uh, in, um, let's see, initially was doing that work and then into Thailand. So I had a long posting in Thailand. Uh, I was posting to the embassy there. Uh, I did a lot of work on countering people smuggling and countering terrorism uh, issues in Thailand, working with uh, the, Thai, the Thai agencies that are uh, work, also working on that issue. I speak Thai. I went, I went to um, Chiang Mai University for a year to learn that, which was fun. Um, uh, I then finished doing that, went back to Canberra, spent some time in our headquarters working on a number of uh, issues um, both sort of geographic and thematic, uh, and then went on a posting to Afghanistan. So I spent a year in Afghanistan working alongside our special forces um, and acting as uh, what they call a, uh, uh, a political military liaison officer or advisor. Um, and so that, was, that involved a lot of working with the, the local 
leadership, uh, the Afghan leadership in um, Karankaut in Uruzgan province, which is sort of in the southern part of Afghanistan. So I spent a year doing, well, actually I spent six months doing that and then I moved up to Kabul for the last six months uh, and sort of lifted it up to the sort of federal level, uh, engaging with the Afghans there. Uh, got back from that, once again, a bit of a stint in headquarters and then uh, moved to my, and, and, you know, all the way, all through this, you know, traveling, uh, you know, to and fro around the world, having a lot of fun. Um, and then I uh, got a posting to Dubai. Um, and as I mentioned at the, at the start, was running our uh, office of uh, regional affairs. Um, I had a, a more senior officer there with me who was the regional coordinator, who was the sort of upward focused fellow. Uh, I was sort of more downwardly focused, sort of uh, organizing the sort of day to day operational activity around the place and, to, you know, and, and coordinating across and coordinating our efforts across, uh, you know, a fairly large amount of countries. And, you know, Australia's, Australia is a, what you'd call a regional power uh, or a, um, a middle power. So we don't, it gives us an interesting perspective on the world. So we, um, our foreign policy uh, tends to be an, uh, to observe um, rather than to act. So we do a lot of work um, on the surface, which which is observational work, but that actually gives us some unite, unique insights into uh, places where um, our bigger and bolder allies, such as you, say, you know the US, can't go right because we're you know we're not perceived to have, perceived to have a, an agenda, uh, and of course we don't because we, our policies are set that way. So that gives us some pretty unique insight. But what it does mean though is because we're small and when we're pushing out far, you know, into the Middle East, um, we're we're very broad and very thin. Um, so our ability to actually you know get get depth in what we're doing uh, is limited. Anyway. So that's it. Then I um, that's uh, yeah. met a girl, and that's all she wrote. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I I noticed you mentioned in some of the bio info that you sent over that that you you've um, you were a director and and, and brand head uh, or branch head um, responsible for cyber and, and counter you know proliferation issues. Can you dive into? I'm just curious about. I, I you know I. I feel like in my mind, cyber issues could go lots of different directions. Can you speak to what, what you guys were doing or what you were doing, you know, regarding that particular assignment or, or dispatch? Yeah. So I, um, uh, I ran a group of capabilities. So once again, you know, very different kind of metric to in the U S where you've got, um, you know, fairly large organizations addressing single issues in Australia, we tend to, have uh, well, we have a much smaller organization uh, and so you get to do a lot more broad you know issue management um, but at a, at a lesser level right so um, uh, I was fortunate enough to be in charge of a number of really interesting programs uh, one of which was uh, concurrently actually uh, one of which was our um, uh, cyber uh, program and so that was, I mean, essentially looking at the aspects of um, cyber security uh, and cyber defense, um, uh, you know, such that they relate to Australia. So, you know, utilizing potential, you know, utilizing defensive measures to prevent um, you know, cyber attacks and cyber um, you know, interference in Australia. 
uh, but also looking at ways that we can utilize our own skills um, to turn the tables. Gotcha. That makes, that makes yeah. sense. That's awesome. So I also, you know, you've mentioned a little bit in the cybersecurity piece, you, you obviously, we mentioned in, in the beginning about what Leavenhall does and, you know, the national security and related technology. And you obviously have several postings across the world. Um, and, you know, I'm a little bit curious of, you know, how the landscape of technology has evolved since, you know, your time over the last few decades yeah. to, you know, kind of what you see coming now and where we're going in the future. Oh, well, you know, that, that's a really interesting question. That's quite, um, quite broad because in some ways technology has improved markedly, but also in other ways, uh, changes in technology have reduced our ability to use the tech, you know, to use the technology and I'll, and I'll explain that. Right. So, Early on when I first deployed to Iraq, for instance, um, you know, I was able to take with me a classified computer. I was able to set it up and I was able to use a mobile phone to provide a data link back to our headquarters and then operate remotely. Um, that was all done over a 2G system <laughs> uh, and it was clunky as hell um, and it was pretty much just text, um, but it worked. And I was able to travel, you know, to, to quite a few places just carrying a, a big Pelican case. Um, uh, with the advent of, you know, with, as the generational change happened through the telecommunications system and then, um, you know, voice and data over IP became more powerful. It, it basically, um, it meant that you couldn't put the security bubble around those telecommunications or that that data communication that you could under a simpler system, right? It became much more complex. And so our ability to, um, our ability to be remote uh, and to be able to undertake uh, communications and or provide communications, both written and verbal back to uh, the center, back to Canberra became much more difficult. And so we stopped doing it um, to a degree. Uh, and we'll, or at least we had less flexibility than what we had before. On the other hand, of course, there's been, you know, s you know, some tremendous leaps forward in the way, the ways we can communicate, um, outwardly, uh, the security around what we're doing, um, uh, and the power of the compute that we can have in the field. Um, uh, so I'd, I'd say the biggest transition has been, from that regard has been that, you know, previously everything was done in, in the headquarters. And this is true across, you know, all agencies, you know, and all countries, to be honest, who, who use uh, computing uh, and data analytics and, and increasingly artificial intelligence. It, it necessarily started off in the headquarters or in a building in a safe place in the home country. Um, and the size of those things was enormous. Um, you know, you, you, basements full of, you know, whirring, whirring machines. Uh, and, you know, increasingly, you know, because of the, the amount of data you're pushing through, um, through the internet and pushing through satellite bearers and other bearers, it's become increasingly difficult to, uh, you know, push that data out. And so the thinking very much has become, we have to do as much, uh, technology on the edge as we can across a whole range of domains. Um, we have to be able to do it in the field uh, and we have to be able to do it in a way that um, 
doesn't rely on communications bearers which have high latency and um, uh, and bandwidth issues. Um, so edge computing has become incredibly important, um, and um, you know that that is layered with uh, the the advent of artificial intelligence and the and the uptake of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, technologies that are really giving massive increases in uh, understanding network analysis, um, you know, threat analysis, a whole bunch of really, uh, really cool applications for national security, but they, they need the horsepower uh, to do it and they need the horsepower in the field. Uh, and I'd say we're right on the cusp of that, um, you know, pushing that out. There's been another interesting change and that relates to the story I told you before, which is, and, and it's been brought to light by the pandemic that we're currently, uh, we're currently in, which is um, because of the security measures required for running classified systems, you need to be in a secure environment. So that's called a SCIF, um, Secure Compartmented Information Facility. Um, and it essentially is a super secure place. Um, the problem with being tied or tethered to a SCIF or to a super secure uh, environment is that you're all in one room all together and you have to actually go there. Uh, and in a, an environment where you can, <laughs> can no longer go to work, uh, that becomes a challenge. And, and the, you know, the national security apparatus and intelligence communities across the world have been, um, you know, caught in a, in a, uh, I guess a conflict, internal conflict, you know, do they push people into work and make them take the risk, uh, in the pandemic environment? Or do they um, keep them at home and stagger it and reduce the capabilities and and uh, and abilities of the um, national security apparatus to do their job? Uh, it's a really really tough choice, and and, each, and agencies have approached it in different ways across different countries. Um, but what that what that has said, and there's an increasing um, uh, movement, especially in the US, on this is you know how do we untether from the skiff? How do we make it so that we can we can work remotely in the field in a way that is secure, that has the horsepower we need, that, um, you know, that, that lets us uh, work from home, for instance, or work in a you know, remote area or when we're locked down in quarantine because we've had to travel to a country, um, from a country. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that move to be more agile uh, and untethered from the skiff is, is a really big important issue that is uh is currently occupying a lot of thought at the moment yeah I, yeah there's like three different places questions i feel like i could go with and i, I think i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna pull out a, a page out of brad's playbook and uh ask a really short question after a really long preamble but um <laughs> I, <laughs> I, you you mentioned you mentioned the the as technology has developed, it's both uh, enabled as well as hindered um, the intelli you know, intelligence agencies uh, and security agencies' ability to, to function um, it, it, with, you know, the, that as technology gets better, people's ability and their access to types of technology to hinder or thwart the efforts and capabilities of security and intelligence groups' ability to monitor them Right. That, that I, if I understand you right, that's kind of what you were driving at with that, right? I, I think it, 
a lot of my, and, and I, you know, Brad will tell you, I have lots of foil hats and I have, you know, I have lots of, you know, weird random things that I think about it. I think there's a perception and I'd love to, and I, I, by no means, this is not, I'm not asking this question out of a political ilk, but I think a lot of people have this perception and, and I think Hollywood helps with it that, you know, these security agencies, you know, have these abilities to tap into anything and everything in your, you know, like they could, if they wanted to, they could watch me cooking dinner by tapping into my, you know, my, my TV and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of people are concerned uh, about some of those things. And I don't want to talk to the concern because the concern is what it is. I'm curious from your perception, uh, if technology is advancing and people are more aware of that, how, how does one, how does that affect intelligence agencies ability to, to collect information and, and how, uh, I know you can't get into the, the weeds in terms of how they're pivoting around that, but is that some of what's driving the innovation in the intelligence community is to, as people are more aware of what, their capabilities are that they're having to try to stay ahead of that curve or is, or is the innovation going in a different direction? Um, it's a, it's a complex question. Uh, you know, innovation, innovation in the intelligence space is being driven by, uh, essentially uh, a competition, I would say, um, more than anything. So there's a, there are a number of, I've got to unpack that question a little bit because there's a lot, there's a lot, there's, sure. yeah, there's no, a lot I, yeah, it. it's loaded. I get it. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of reasons to innovate. Um, one is to increase the capability of what you're doing, um, uh, against your adversaries. Um, you know, there's a, the, the questions that get asked of the national intelligence community, um, and the intelligence communities everywhere, are you know, set by government, the, you know, it's what the government wants to know and the intelligence community has to solve the problem of how they answer those questions. Uh, and they have to answer those questions uh, in as fulsome manner as possible uh, to, and to try to undo the ambiguity that goes with um, the nature of those questions. And so the, the, the innovation around intelligence is driven by a desire to provide clarity. Um, that, that's the main desire. There is a, uh, counter narrative, a, a counter aspect to this, which is our adversaries are doing the same thing to us. Um, um, and you know, every country has a legitimate, um, reason, a legitimate uh, requirement to understand what is happening with friends and foe alike. You know, it's, it's just, it's just how the world works in, in, in reality. Um, and so our adversaries are doing that to us. Uh, so there is a, um, a, you know, a race to, um, be able to defend against that. So that's on the capability. Pure intelligence doesn't take into consideration the individual rights of, of people who are in the community. Um, th that part of the question that, that political aspect and the, and the human rights aspect and privacy considerations, um, uh, are a challenge and they're and obviously subject to interpretation. But I would say that in my experience, the, I, I have never seen malintent um, with that. And the, there are structures in place across communities in, especially in the Western countries, uh, independent structures, which act as the uh, methods for scrutiny on how, technology is applied within the law. Um, 
And so, the, you know, to answer that part of the question, you know, the intelligence communities are not, you know, specifically trying to find out what you had for breakfast. Um, even, even though they probably <laughs> could. It'd be very boring to find <laughs> out. Even though they probably could. Um, that, that's not what they're trying to sure. do. And there are a bunch of uh, legislative restrictions um, preventing them from doing that. Um, especially to especially to their own citizens. Um, without without good cause. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, the other part to it is, you know, uh, trying to get back to the, what's driving it. The, um, you know, there is a genuine, there is a genuine fear that we will be left behind. Um, and that, uh, you know, our life is online now, increasingly everyone will be online and increasingly there is going to be a digital life, which allows you to, you know, get inside the way people think and inside the way they act and, and, you know, what might indicate if they're going to make bad decisions or, uh, decisions that are going to impact national security. So that, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, with the, the, the greater ability to get that understanding, there's a, there's a greater a desire to want to get it. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, for, for me, it's, yeah, it, there's a, there's a, there's a, a I, from what I hear you saying, you know, there's, there's also that balance of, of understanding, you know, security and safety and, you know, to your point, making sure that, that we're, we're, we're monitoring the right things to keep at the end of the day, the security agencies and intelligence agencies, it, it, they're all about protecting us. Right? right. And, and from, you know, from foe, whether that's, you know, domestic or international. Yeah, that's or right. Whatever, and I, and I would say that the ethics, yeah. the ethics, the ethics, um, of national security are at the forefront of everyone's mind. Um, and, and you know, you, you seldom <laughs> undertake any kind of planning or activity without, uh, legal advice, without, um, some sort of oversight. In fact, never, I would say never anymore, maybe in the past, back in the bad right. old days, but not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I, I, we've, we've touched on a lot of things of, there's a lot of data and analytics being used. You know, there's a lot of that processing of data. So, mm-hmm. you know, to, to the folks and Drew to put one of your tinfoil hats away, like the people, you know, yes, they probably could have the opportunity to see what I could eat for breakfast, but there's how many people across, oh, yeah. you know, globe, right. Yeah, Where like, for sure. you know, in honesty, in my opinion, at least like if they're looking into you, they, they probably feel like they have a pretty legitimate legal reason to look into you. Like if you're, you know, a normal human being just living your life. I don't feel like they really care that much about, you know, digging in and and tapping in there, especially inwardly in the United States. Um, So correct me if I'm wrong there, but that's kind of my, my impression of there's just so much information to filter through. It's it's a little bit, it's a little bit more complex than that. Right. So, um, you know, individuals have a right to privacy and that's enshrined in in legislation in my country and in the U S um, so, and people should feel entitled to have that privacy and to, and to do their, you know, go about their lives unmolested and, and feeling like they're able to, you know, to do their normal day-to-day life without someone looking over their shoulder. And, that, and that's, a, that's a really important thing um, Absolutely. for democracy and for freedom, the freedoms that we have, right? Yeah. Um, you absolutely can with the, the technology that is around at the moment, uh, bulk data analysis, uh, you know, large data techniques, the ability to store massive amounts of data, um, 
and even people that are storing data and have been storing data for quite some time, even without the ability to analyze it in case they want to retrospectively analyze it once they get the technology to allow them to do it. Um, that is absolutely achievable right here, right now. Um, and so really the, 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 the approach really needs to be surgical uh, and it needs to be driven by uh, legitimate government requirements. And I think that, and, and then, and then overlaid with an oversight process, which exists. Um, that's not to say there's not errors along the way. Of course there are um, because at the end of the day, we're all human. Um, but uh, as I mentioned before, in my, in my experience, uh, no one has the intent to break the rules. Right. So you mentioned you know, this, this concept of, of the skiff and, and having to be in that ultra secure area and, and COVID potentially driving the, I'm, I'm assuming that this wasn't a novel concept prior to COVID, but maybe COVID's accelerated this idea of how do you take that skiff like environment out, you know, and, and, and dis distribute it into to multiple areas so that you don't have to have this consolidation of manpower and resource. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned edge computing playing a, you know, playing a, a role or, or, you know, maybe the driving force in that. What, do you, it, it, you know, I'm curious, and this is one of a question that we ask everybody that comes on, on, on the show. Um, you know, from your perspective, you know, the one, what, how do you conceptualize the edge? You know, what, it, what does that mean to you? And, and, uh, and, and how do you see the edge playing a role in that type of adaptation in, in, in that, in, in, you know, in the security intelligence space? Um, yeah. So the edge in my mind is um, essentially it starts large. Uh, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like a, a layered, in my mind, a layered thing, right? So you, mm -hmm. as you're moving out from really dense, you know, large scale, uh, computing in the middle, uh, and then pushing out to, uh, say an edge, an edge data center, maybe, maybe there's something that's, um, you know, in an embassy or in a, uh, forward operating base or in headquarters in the field, uh, pushing even further out to, the individual uh, warfighter or intelligence operator on the ground, you know, the, the technology that they've got in their hand, you know, like a, a phone or a, uh, you know, mobile phones are incredibly powerful computing devices. Um, and all yeah. of those things when intermeshed from the tactical, from the tactical to the sort of mid-level to the more strategic uh, computing powers are all, are all part of the system. So the edge I think is anything beyond the center, uh, and it becomes, you know, more and more, um, granular the further you go out, I think. Yeah. And to follow up on that, how do you, so I, and I, and I think that's a brilliant conceptualization of the, anything beyond the center. And I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to write that down to use it. Cause I like that. Um, but, uh, if, you, what do you see as capable? I mean, you, you know, the, the edge technology, the data center technology, the, the mobile technology is, is constantly evolving. And, and both to your point, literally the mobile technology, our, our phones, you know, those cellular devices, as well as mobile compute technology is, is, is evolving. And, and it, 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 it seems as though we're in this exponential, like at the very 
base of a very strong exponential curve in terms of the technology that's being developed and coming. What do you think is possible from, you know, to your point, an FOB standpoint or an individual operator? Like where, where do you think that the tech really, like how, how crazy can we get, you know, in terms of what's realistic? Like, I mean, there, you know, Tom Clancy novels and all this crazy stuff, right? There, there's stuff out there in terms of, you know, what people think could happen, but what's realistically, what are we looking at from what could be developed with the technology in the next 10 to 15 years? Uh, look, I think uh, this is a really cool question because I love this stuff. You know, I, uh, I, I think I love conceptualizing about how, how far we can take science uh, and technology in the, in, in the field. But, you know, the, the ultimate, I, I think the ultimate um, manifestation of it in the national security space is total situational awareness. So, you know, as an individual, uh, I, I can understand uh, the people that I'm seeing. I can look at them. I can get a readout on their background, uh, whether they're going to have bad intentions or good intentions. Uh, I can look at potentially the electromagnetic spectrum to see what environment I'm in from that perspective. Uh, I understand, you know, what aircraft are above me, what, you know, other things might be monitoring me, you know, like I said, total situational awareness. Um, you know, that from a warfighter perspective and from an intelligence operator's perspective is, um, is critical for safety, but it also, you know, it's critical for accuracy in what you're doing. Um, so from a warfighter perspective, for instance, ensuring that, you know, if you're in a battle that you can avoid civilian casualties, or if you're in a unconventional situation that you're not accidentally killing the wrong person, you know, that's important stuff, right? Um, or more importantly, no, sorry, that's not more important. Alternatively, um, that if you are targeting someone that you're, you know, really sure that it's the person that needs to be targeted. Um, and along those lines, uh, providing you alternatives to, to how you deal with it. So understanding people's networks, how you can influence them. Um, you know, if you can imagine, <laughs> this, I mean, this is, this is a real flight of fancy, but I've got to say it's not too far off. Uh, you know, walking down a street, having, um, having the ability to uh, look at a person um, and it's terrifying. And I'm sure the, the, you know, for, for a civil rights, from a civil rights perspective, it's, um, it's, it's your tinfoil hat at Drew. Yeah, right. But you, you look at something, you look at somebody and with, uh, visual recognition, you tap into their social media profile, uh, and profiles, any of their online presence, you can pick up from their, you know, the, their phone and their watch and whatever it else that they're wearing and you know, the type of techno technology mm -hmm. that they've got access to. You can get a pretty quick indication of who their network of friends are. Um, the types sure. of things they like, what they've got, you know, what information they might know that could be of use, um, that kind of thing. And yeah. that could all be, that yeah, could all be projected onto your eyeball. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting that you bring that up because, and I, and we'll take a left turn here and we'll, we'll make it back <laughs> on, the, on the main course here. But yeah, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, the series. I think, I think it was a BBC series and then Netflix picked it up black mirror. Yes. Um, yeah. So they, I don't remember which season it was, but they, there was an episode where essentially everybody 
there was a technology and a system by which they garnered all of that information about your social, your credit score, your buying history, all this stuff. Um, and you got a, a rating. Oh, and yeah. based on, you know, and, and you, you could only associate with people that had a similar rating to you. Right. Um, so it's interesting that you bring that up because it, it, it's obviously it's not something that, that that's novel or that people aren't conceptualizing. Yeah, yeah. They, did, you know? they did that um, on Community, too. I saw that episode the other day. Oh, did <laughs> they really? a, a okay, comedy version right. of it. <laughs> nice. Nice. But, but it's really it's really yeah. challenging. Like the ethics of that is is really yeah, challenging, oh, yeah. really challenging. And I think that's something the governments are grappling with. Um, yeah, it's certainly beyond my pay grade, but, uh, For sure. <laughs> uh to, just to say that that capability is, um, you know, it's within our grasp. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's, it, it, it is, but it, it there's a, I, I have to imagine there's a massive amount of, of, of continuous compute that would have to go on for you to, right. to be able to have, right. Cause a lot exactly. of what we talk about is, you know, there's, there's the compute, but then there's, there's the trans, you know, the, the, the transit of that compute. Right. So for you to be able to be walking down the street and pass me and see my social profile and my credit scores and, you know, it, it, do I have a, a criminal record and all of that stuff for you to be able to get that in real time there's got to be a massive compute and trend you know and and, yeah. and so uh, communication huge amount of data that. transmission as well as a huge a huge database to access and a huge amount of information to go through um very right. very quickly um and you need some you know some seriously high-powered computers to do that yeah for sure right, and, right. And, and even you know like and, and uh, uh, you know tmg is definitely you know, on the pathway to, um, to enabling that kind of technology. Um, <laughs> right, right. but, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah. And, and as we, as we bump into quantum computing where it's, you know, the, the there's going to be orders of magnitude and processing speed achievable. Um, mm -hmm. you know, that that's, that'll be, a, that'll be a massive step as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask one more tinfoil hat question and then I'll, um, I'll, I'll pass the buck, but you know, we, you know, AI and machine learning and all these things are, are, uh, obviously, I mean, they're buzzwords, but they're, they're real things, right? The, the, the proliferation of artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and all of those things are, 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 it's real and it, it's here. And I'm, you know, just to, kind of piggyback off of that example we were just talking about, I, I, one, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a potential for AI to have a real impact in some of that type of, maybe it's not real, real time awareness and, and those kinds of things legitimately, you know, in, in a walking down the street scenario. But, um, I have to imagine that at some point, if it's, it may, it may already be happening, I'm just not aware of it, but that, that, that artificial intelligence and machine learning that, that it's being used to, um, you know, to assess, threats, um, whether that's, you know, you know, yeah, threats and risk, you know, and saying, okay, well, we, we have these factors and we've got algorithms and based on past things and factors that, you know, that affect those factors, this is what we think the potential risk threat is. And this is where, where we feel like the risk is. And, and because to your point, we only have a finite amount of resources. So part of that game is allocating your resources in the right place. Right. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if, if you can speak to how that's being done or how the technology that's being advanced is, is just going to increase that capability. Yeah. I'll give, I'll give you a, a real example. And it's, uh, one of our, um, one of our clients is a, an AI company that, uh, centers around some very interesting science around the voice, 
and the way the voice can contain information uh, and not because of modulation or because of uh, what you say, but just the inherent uh, physical, physical way that the voice box forms words, regardless of culture and regardless of language um, that is common to all humans. Right. So the, this science is the science has come. There's a lot of been work being done at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon um, around the, you know, the research and, and development. One of our clients uh, has a technology which um, allows through a, um, a Siri kind of interface. Um, so a, an automated voice, it can ask between five and 10 yes or no questions. Um, and with a 98% accuracy rate, uh, can give you an indication of, um, of risk. So, you know, call that truthfulness or call that, um, you know, deception or whatever. So it's that, that that's a really powerful technology. And then that is near real time. So you can get the answers to that very, very quickly. Um, where they're using that very cleverly, uh, is in, um, uh, in, assessing inside a threat, uh, in particular in uh, war zones where um, there have been a number of what they call green on blue incidences where, you know, partner forces have been infiltrated by terrorist groups, say in Afghanistan, and they might have been infiltrated by the Taliban. Uh, and they nestled themselves inside a partner force and then use that as an opportunity to, to kill uh, US and Australian soldiers. And that's a well-known, um, a well-known a series of incidents that have happened over many years. So the, this technology has been is being used to determine if any of the partner forces have got affiliations with threat groups, terrorist groups, Taliban, etc. So that's that's a really specific and very positive defensive use of that technology. In a more commercial sense, they're using it for uh, for people who are undertaking fraudulent activity, uh, for HR um, selection processes. Um, and, and the way they're using it is not to say uh, no and, and say this is a bad thing, but essentially it's to hone in um, HR people and insurance uh, inspectors and investigators to, to hone in on where they should look deeper. Um, but the technology is incredibly powerful. It's AI backed. It it's, resides in the cloud. Um, yeah, I'm curious. So, I, not knowing much about the technology, I, I am my and I, I, I'm, I'm curious. Is it something? So, I have a, I have a background in mental health. Is that is the technology such that it could be leveraged in terms of like uh, resiliency, like on on yep. resiliency or crisis hotlines and those kinds of things to 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 give some sort of a risk assessment on you know if somebody's somebody calls into a you know a crisis hotline like a suicide hotline or something it's, like that to use the technology to determine a level of risk for that individual to harm themselves or not? Uh, look, I. I'd say, I mean, it probably could, but um, I would say a a better utilization of it, um, or a, a yeah, a better way to use that kind of technology would be, for instance, in the veteran community, where uh, veterans are taught to be tough and to hide their emotions and and really sort of squirrel it all inside, which then ultimately uh, has negative results, and you know, the veteran community has huge huge rates of PTSD and, and suicide. So as part of a welfare check, having put, putting someone through that technology on a welfare check to determine whether they are kidding themselves firstly, whether they're feeling good or whether they're actively lying about it because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to tell people that they've got a weakness or that they're feeling bad. 
Um, so yeah, from a, from a mental health resiliency perspective, yeah, really strong applications. Um, yeah, there's, there's, other, there's cool. other applications too for law enforcement, for instance, where, uh, you know, currently there's no accurate, uh, and quick way of determining if someone has been um, taking drugs apart from doing a, uh, a blood test, right, which you have to go back to the station for. You know, they've got the alcohol test, which you can do, you know, by speaking. Well, in this situation, you can just ask someone, have you been taking drugs? <laughs> you know? That's and, fascinating. Yeah. So, so there's a whole bunch of really interesting um, applications of that kind of technology. So yes, to answer your question earlier on, mate, that there are there are a lot of you know real life right here right now applications for AI uh, and and machine learning that are going to change the way we think about things across the board. Wow, that 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 has my mind spinning on a lot of the possibilities. I can see why now you sit there and go, "Where can it go?" and why you get so excited about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> now, like, I don't have the anywhere close to any of the experience that you have, and I'm already going, "Man, this is cool. This is cool. That could be happening. That could be happening." Um, yeah. You know, and I have kind of a two-part question that you, you somewhat you know touched on of the different applications, and you know, we all know that there's different government agencies, but when, you know, people start thinking of the government, they typically like to go three letter agencies or even the military and wartime. And obviously there's plenty of need for technology innovation in those communities, but there's also the, the healthcare aspects of it or the utility aspect of it, or, you know, the veteran affairs side, which we, we topped into just a little bit, um, you know, from those different broader groups, are you seeing kind of an equal push for innovation or is it being led by, you know, the three letter agencies in the government? Um, that's the first kind of part of my question. And so I'll let you answer that. <laughs> I have a second part. Okay. Um, the answer is that the commercial sector is the driving force for the innovation. And, and I would say that's one of the things that has changed um, over the years. I mean, very much it was the case previously that, especially in the US where, you know, the big research um, uh, institutions within the DOD in particular um, were driving innovation um, from a federal government perspective and the commercial space was kind of lagging behind. But I would say probably for the last 20 years, and that's a, a wild ass guess, but for the last 20 years, the commercial sector has accelerated uh, it's innovation speed beyond what the government can achieve. And that's for a bunch of reasons, not through lack of demand or, or intent, but just because the government is constrained by uh, bureaucracy, some of it necessary. For instance, you know, the, the government has to invest, invest the taxpayers' money. Um, and so there is an oversight process which makes sure that they are actually doing that uh, in a meaningful and, and well-considered manner. Um, the commercial sector is driven by different motivations. It's driven by profit. It's driven by, um, in some cases, goodwill and, and a desire to change things, but not constrained by having to go back and uh, and uh, and seek approval to do it. They just crack on and get on with it. So I would say that the driver of innovation currently is in the commercial sector, and part of what I'm doing is trying to, you know, grab that tiger by the tail, I guess, and say, look, the commercial innovation needs to you know, it needs to be pulled into the government and national security sector because it really is outstripping it by quite a significant way. And, and we've got to find a way 
to to drive through the bureaucracy uh, and and uh, and the procurement problems and acquisition problems uh, or challenges, I guess is probably a better way to describe it, that the government has, especially in the national security space. Uh, and my intention is to um, is to is to create a list of technologies or like a shopping list of technologies, maybe a, a marketplace of national security focused technology uh, that the national security agencies, the three letter agencies can come and look at and say, we want that. That's really cool. We can use that and let them sort out their procurement problems, but have that technology shaped in the best way such that it actually is an easy transition. Cause there's a lot of things to consider about working in the, you know, for an intelligence community agency, right? It's, it's, um, you know, there's different considerations about security around the technology, about supply chain, about the people that are involved in it, uh, about um, its ability to access, um, you know, the open source cloud, for instance. You know, there's there's things that you need to prepare for uh, uh, to engage the intelligence community. And the the other thing is, is that some com- some technologies have national security application, but uh, but don't know it. And so, and so they sometimes need a bit of help understanding that, you know, if they, um, if they were willing to apply their technology in a particular manner, that, uh, it could be of great utility. Um, okay. so it's that joining up piece. So that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's what I do right here, right now. Awesome. Yeah. Job. And, and that actually, that helps answer, or at least helps me form an opinion. I'll ask my second part of the question is obviously the commercial side to your point is driving it. And you're trying to create that marketplace to help match them. And then you mentioned a little bit of the bureaucracy. When you work with different agencies and different sections of, of the government, are you know, there's a perception mainly led by, you know, a lot of the books that are out there, a lot of television shows, movies and stuff that a lot of those inner agencies don't like to work together. Um, or they do when they have to, but from a technology adoption perspective. I know they probably all have their own individual components and focuses to meet their specific needs. But mm-hmm. when it comes to matching up technologies, do you see that, you know, they typically like to share resources or do they kind of like to stay within their own little bucket and do what they need to do and, you know, reluctantly share if they absolutely have to? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's an interesting challenge in the U S in particular, and I'll focus on the U S to start with, and then and I'll, and offer you a comparison to some of the smaller countries out there. The, the U S is enormous. Uh, it, it is, a, the, you know, the, the department of defense, for instance, uh, uh, has, you know, the, the Marine Corps, which is the smallest branch of the, of the military in the U S is bigger than the entire Australian defense force. So, it, you know, there's a there's an order of magnitude of scale which comes with its own uh, bureaucracy, its and its own stovepipes in particular. Uh, and so there has been procurement systems developed by branch and by unit and by command uh, that don't necessarily communicate with other other parts, uh, even within their own uh, branch, right? But there is definitely a desire and an acknowledgement that that's the case. Um, and there are some pretty important uh, organizations out there. So on the defense side, you've got um, the Pentagon working through some agencies like the Defense Innovation Unit, uh, as well as the National Security Innovation Network, who are trying to pull together all the disparate threads within DOD 
And on the intelligence side, you've got Incutel, um, which is uh, based in Silicon Valley, which is the intelligence community's interface really with uh, the commercial world. And they represent the intelligence community as a whole and act as a, as a, as a center point. Uh, on top of that, you've got the um, director of national intelligence um, sitting above all of the intelligence agencies with an innovation unit, which is once again trying hard to uh, ensure that there is um, efficiencies and optimization of those pathways, right? An enormous challenge in such a, a huge environment. Uh, conversely, in a very small environment like in Australia, uh, where we don't have as many people, we don't have as many um, uh, you know, resources as well. There is still that problem. There is still a stovepiping issue. Uh, and there are once again, um, uh, efforts underway, especially in defense to try to tighten that up. So Australia's created its own defense innovation unit, for instance, which is, which is emulating the one in the U S uh, Incutel has moved out to Australia. Uh, in order to to help um, the Office of National Intelligence there, um, you know, construct and build their own, you know, IC uh, innovation system, and and Leavenhall's playing a role in that too. And we we're uh, uh, working to develop a early stage uh, national security uh, investment fund, venture fund, uh, which will focus on pushing companies from early stage in Australia, you know, investing in them and pushing them into the national security environment, or at least making them aware of it and shaping them for it. Um, uh, but to broaden the scope a little bit, uh, the U S has a lot of allies, um, and some of them closer than others, uh, in the intelligence world, there's a fairly old alliance called the five eyes Alliance, which is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, and the U S and that, that is an intelligence sharing alliance, which is, uh, which came out of the Second World War, effectively, and it's long-standing and it, and, it, and it covers all of the ICs. Uh, in the defence domain, there's the from from Australian perspective, there's a, a treaty called ANZUS, which is the Australian New Zealand US treaty. There's NATO. There's um, you know individual bilateral treaties. Um, the the level of technology sharing, even within the tightest of the intelligence communities, uh, you know, the, the Five Eyes is pretty poor. Um, it's, you know, in some, in some aspects of intelligence, uh, especially the SIGINT agencies, which is the, the signals intelligence agencies, the sharing is, is, um, is very good. Um, but on the human intelligence side, not, not so much. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, uh, historical and, and practical. And, um, um, but there's also some not very good reasons for it, too, <laughs> um, which can be overcome. So, you know, so one of the things Leavenhall's trying to do is to um, is to help resolve that uh, that alliance sharing of technology and, and, and awareness of technology. And for instance, um, there's going to be technology in the US that's relevant to Australia. We already know that because that's pretty much how it works already. But there is definitely technology in Australia that's going to be relevant to the US, might be relevant to Canada, might be relevant to the UK, might be relevant to Japan. Um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, a general, um, uh, we have a desire to improve the mobility and the agility of national security related technology across alliances. Um, so I'm curious, yeah. I mean, you obviously hit on, on 
as a whole, what you guys at, at Hall are doing. I'm curious how, I, I, I know this, I'd love for you to speak to, I think I know this based on what you've already said, but like what made you, you know, you, you were, I know you said you, you were in Dubai, you, you got, you know, you met your wife, got married, but what, what was the impetus for, for starting Hall in terms of, you know, what made you think, man, there's a lot of great tech out there and I want to try to connect, you know, international intelligence communities with, with technology. What, what, what was the motivation behind starting Levenhall? Well, so, I mean, the, the partners, the, the four of us, um, who are the partners in Levenhall uh, are all former national security professionals and, and pretty recent. Um, and it was really as simple as seeing technology and saying, Hey, that is excellent technology. And we don't have you know, in our old jobs, we didn't have access to it and it would have made us much more capable and able to, to serve our governments if we had been able to have that technology. And so we started trying to find ways to get it there. Um, and you know, there's as, as novices really, um, you know, with long careers in the government, you don't get exposed to, um, you don't get exposed to the commercial side very often. Um, so we had assumed it was pretty easy, right? We were assuming, yeah, you know, surely there's a way to do this. It's, you know, surely the, the paths are well trodden. Um, but as we started investigating, it, it, it became apparent that it, it was actually quite complex. Uh, and there's, you know, at the heart of it really is a, is a translation issue as a lexicon, you know, the, the national security apparatus speaks a language that is quite different to the technology world. Um, and trying to trying to match those two languages together and help the you know, technologies company technology companies interpret you know a, a you know a solicitation from SOCOM what is SOCOM for starters you know special operations command you know what does you know all these little acronyms mean what are the the, the three letter acronyms you know TLAs what are, what are all of them and you know it's full of them similarly similarly you know the national security apparatus has has a very poor understanding of you know, how a company works, what phase they're in of investment, you know, whether they've had seed, whether they've got a minimum viable product, whether they're ready to go to market, what their go-to-market strategy is, all, all of those things are, uh, you know, an anathema to the, to the national security and, and nor do they care really. They just want their thing. So, so what we, what we realized is that we, um, we, we all wanted to serve. We wanted to continue to serve. We didn't, none of us left because, um, necessarily we wanted to, we, we made all, we all made life choices, family choices, um, uh, important ones that, uh, we, you know, obviously we stand by, but, um, you know, we did want to still do our bit and, you know, you don't join that environment because, you know, you want to make lots of money and, and, um, you know, there's a little bit of wanting to see the world, but, you know, mostly you want to be part of something and part of a, uh, you know, do something for society. And it sounds a bit trite to say, but it's, it's true. Um, and so we, you know, we all basically said, okay, well, we want to do this. We want to continue to serve by helping make our national security apparatus more capable. Um, and so then we started mapping. Um, we, we started working with companies to find the pathways um, and then tailoring those pathways for the specific company. And we found that, you know, some of our skill sets uh, made us um, able to do that, so especially military planning. Um, there's a lot of commonality between military planning process and, and some of the skills uh, involved in business development and, and marketing. Uh, 
early on in the piece, we started working with some Australian and uh, UK companies. Uh, and we realized, you know, real quick that, you know, the US actually, for, for all its challenges, is probably 10 years ahead of the UK, uh, which in itself is probably 10 years ahead of Australia and Canada um, and New Zealand. And, uh, and so we said, well, we need to understand how the systems work there as well, because that's fundamental to our vision. Um, you know, and, and as an Australian, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, the Alliance is probably more important to us than it is to the U S you know, we, we rely heavily on, uh, on it and, and we want to contribute to it and we want to be part of it. You know, we want to do our bit. And so there's a real desire to sort of have us, you know, make it work. Uh, and so, you know, where, and that, that led us to the, the to our, our next phase actually is, uh, we, we sort of looked at the outside, outside of the U S and said, okay, how can we take the best bits of the US and design an ecosystem, an innovation ecosystem that, that answers the problems for the US's closest allies? And so we started designing uh, different pieces of an ecosystem that start at the R&D phase in universities where you know there's a whole bunch of really, really good ideas and, uh, and there's some very, very smart people you know, doing some excellent research, but they can't get it out. They, they can't find the pathway and, and very few of them are focused on answering a national security challenge. Uh, and then there's the next phase, which is the one we're doing first, which is the acceleration phase. You know, how do you get that early stage company to make it viable and have a product that works? Uh, and then which is concurrently aware of the national security environment. And then beyond that is how do you then grow that company? How do you make it commercially viable to hedge against procurement uncertainty? Um, ha it has to be commercially successful. And that's where this concept of dual use technology comes in where you know, there needs to be a commercial, uh, commercial application. So our focus is definitely not um, things that go bang and, um, you know, true military hardware. Um, that's not the space we're looking at. We're looking at the, um, the, the more, um, I guess, refined technology that, that comes around intelligence and, and national security work and the architecture that supports it. Gotcha. Oh, that makes sense. That's really cool. And I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's super cool that you guys found a way to, to continue to serve in your space, you know, and, and really, you, I mean, the way I see it, and I, and I don't know if this is accurate, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are almost, you, you're, you're serving not in a better way, but just in, a, in an enabling way, right? You're, you're trying to help the, guy, right. the guys and gals that are doing what they're doing, do it better, more effectively, safer, uh, and I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's really, really cool. That yeah. You I mean, we, we see ourselves representing on one hand, the warfighter and the intelligence operator at the tactical level. Yeah. And on the other hand, the technology company, um, you know, you know, out in the, in the real world and our, our mission is to try to join the two together yeah. in the most expeditious way possible. Right. Um, and you know, that sounds easy. <laughs> Well, that's my next question. I mean, what's been your biggest challenge? I mean, I, obviously, I think the easy answer is the bureaucracy, right? Because to your point, the the system, the 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 internal systems that you're dealing with have their bureaucracy, and the the technology development organizations have have their you know their their hurdles of development and all of those things. But what what do you feel like has been the single largest barrier to that connection? Hmm. Um, I think there's depending on the stage. So I'll, I'll address each side. Um, on the, on the commercial side, 
uh, companies, especially at an early stage, have a bandwidth issue. Um, you know, they're focusing on their core business, on uh, becoming successful, you know, making a profit, making sure they don't collapse. You know, there's a, there's a pretty high failure rate in startups. Um, and so they don't have a lot of time, both, you know, so human, human resource time or, you know, intellectual time to devote to addressing uh, a BD problem effectively. Um, so that's, that's one thing which we're, we're trying to solve for them. Uh, so that, that's been, that it's convincing a board of a company that yes, you do, you know, it is worth your while to allocate some resources to Leavenhall to help you get into this space. Um, you know, it, it is a, it is a big market and I'll give you some examples, some, some numbers. So in the intelligence community, a few years ago across the five eyes Alliance, the overall size of the market was 65 billion, $62 billion which is a pretty big amount of that 62 billion 55 billion was the US um, <laughs> 3 billion about was the UK one and a half billion each for Australia and Canada and then sort of in the hundreds of thousands for um, New Zealand uh, so you know like it's it's a, a high order of magnitude um, for the US that makes the US market a compelling market choice um, and within that you know you know, that's an annual budget, 65 billion. So like, it's not, it's not small and inconsequential. So there's a real potential for accessing that funds. And there have been a number of unicorns uh, that have been um, achieved through focusing on, um, on the federal market. On the government side, uh, like you, you nailed it on the head straight away, bureaucracy, like it's a killer. Um, and uh, you know, there's, there's a, generally speaking, there is a disconnect between the operator and the warfighter from the procurement people. And, 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 you know, that's just mostly a nature of, uh, uh, of geography and, um, you know, people's skill sets and what have you. But, you know, if you're going to talk to a, a special forces operator about what he wants or she wants in the field, um, compared to what the procurement officers are uh, saying that they need through official um, solicitations or broad um, agency announcements, that kind of thing, um, they, they, they can be quite different. Uh, and so it's sort of trying to navigate the, it's trying to, it's trying to get to the heart of what we actually need. You know, what are the things we need to do our jobs? Uh, yeah. That's awesome. So thank you for that. This is, this is super fascinating. I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and I, and I'd be a little remiss if I, if I didn't stir the pot and, and scare Drew a little bit with, you know, some tinfoil <laughs> hat stuff. So I, you know, as we all know, you know, there's an executive order that came out for virtual substations and, you know, there's all sorts of different articles out there, depending on what you want to believe that, you know, the next potential massive attack could be more of a technology EMP attack of things. Mm. Um, and so I kind of wanted to get, because of your experience and your opinion and, and slightly to, to have some, some giggles at, at Drew's expense, uh, <laughs> you know, what do you think is the validity of that? You know, what are some of the actual potentials versus what are some of the, the defenses that you've talked about? You know, some of the sharing that we've already touched on is, 
is it real? Is it not real? You know, kind of, kind of where we sit with some of those things. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that in generalities, I think for the most part, but the, I mean, think of it this way, a, a nation state will undertake a planning process, um, both for, you know, for a, a clear and present threat, as well as in a contingency perspective to defeat any perceived adversary. Right. And so what they'll do is they'll undertake a mission planning process at the strategic level, which will look at a society and say, how can we defeat it? And critical infrastructure, um, and the ability for people to communicate, to have power, um, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, uh, to travel, um, to, to, to have their logistics, uh, work. They're all key, key parts of it. Right. So there, there are efforts, um, across a number of nations to ensure that if it ever came down to it, that they would be able to disable aspects of critical infrastructure. Um, and, and then that's just because that's good military planning. Uh, and you know, in the military, the mindset is, well, if you're going to plan for it, you might as well get ready for it. So of course they start working out how to do that. And then they develop the weapons to enable them to do it. Now, what state those weapons are in at any given time, I actually, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, but I know that the, that that is something that is critical. Um, so what, in response to that, a really important thing to defend against that, even if it's a perceived threat is to consider business continuity and business resilience, um, and business resumption. Um, and so having the ability to be prepared to, um, shift your command centers, for instance, or shift your banking, um, institutions, um, information to somewhere which is uh, isolated from that kind of attack is, is something that should be being considered. And, and, and it's a pretty, it's a, it's a critical part of national defense, I think. Yeah. So that answer the question. No, it, it does. You know, and, and I know that you have to speak in generalities because of what you do. And, you know, I always like to, to poke fun at, at Drew's tinfoil hat, but you know, it, it makes sense obviously from a military planning perspective, but the business continuity piece, obviously Drew and I have more of a technology data center background. It's what typical businesses are doing, you know, right. not to the scale of, you know, necessarily true outside attacks, except for maybe, you know, a competitor in a cybersecurity that, you know, hack or just bad actors in general. Yeah. Um, but that, that makes perfect sense. And, and it does answer the question. And well, you know, I obviously is, think yeah, go it, ahead. it actually, it, it has, it has much broader utility. That's the, that's the, the reason to do it really. It's not because you think, you know, China's going to drop an EMP and wipe out the power grid. It's because there's things like hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes that, you know, you need to ensure that, you know, the society continues to operate and that you can go to the bank and get your money out or, you know, use the telephone to call for an ambulance. You know, all of those things need to continue regardless. And so business resumption as a, as a, uh, like as a very broad brush national security posture is really important and, and it has to be being considered. So Adam, are there any things that you can think of? I mean, we've touched on a lot and, and as we're, we're kind of drawn to the end of our time, are there things that are of interest to you that, that you can talk about that, that we haven't addressed that, that you want to, you want to talk about before we, before we head out? 
look, uh, one of the things that uh, might, might be useful to, to think about is how we perceive capability gaps. Um, and because that's, that's a really interesting part of the problem uh, where it's actually a, it's a really important, um, you know, essential element of, uh, of they call it an EFI, essential element of friendly information. So it's, it's the, it's a really important part of your own country's secret knowledge is what their gaps are, what they can't do. Right. So they don't like to share and it's really, <laughs> you know, they don't like to tell anyone publicly what they can't do. Um, so there's a real challenge in, you know, that's why, you know, if you, if you ever look at, you know, look at the, um, the broad agency announcements of the kinds of things that they're looking for, they're really broad, you know, like they'll look, they, they say, Oh, we're interested in artificial intelligence technology or you know, cybersecurity or whatever it is, but they don't go specifically into the detail of what it is they actually need. And there's a real, um, what that does is it creates a lot of noise and, and it creates a lot of, creates a lot of mismatching between what people perceive the problem to be and what the problem actually is. So we, we use a lens uh, when we're looking at technologies inside Leavenhall to determine with a bit more granularity um, what a capability gap might be and how a technology could fulfill it. And we use what's, uh, what's called the intelligence cycle, which is a, a standard military NATO, you know, everyone in the world uses it and it's how all intelligence agencies run. It's essentially a, a process where, you know, someone gives direction uh, to collect intelligence, the intelligence agency goes out and collects it. They bring it back, they analyze it, they put it into a report and then they disseminate it. And because of that report that's been disseminated, more questions come up and the cycle continues. So that's, that's the, the broad intelligence cycle. There's five components to it. It's really traditional. It's, you know, it's kind of a little bit passe and it's, you know, there's some newer, th newer thinking around how intelligence processes work. But for us, it's a pretty neat way to say, okay, well, a technology that we're looking at might fit in, say, the collection space. And we understand that, you know, there's a particular gap, um, mainly because we're recent and mainly because we've got some advisors around us who provide connectivity to the intelligence community. So we talk to those advisors and we say, you know, would, you know, technology X fulfill that particular collection gap at the moment? Um, and they say, yes or no. Um, similarly, uh, for analysis, and now an analysis actually is probably a bigger challenge at the moment than any collection technology where, you know, because of the amount of data that can be consumed and sucked in uh, and the amount of horsepower needed to analyze that data, there's, you know, uh, it's, it's a massive challenge for an intelligence agency to, to analyze all the things that they've got and not miss something critical. Um, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of technologies around that. And then underlying all of that stuff around the intelligence cycle, cycle is the infrastructure that supports all of it. Uh, and, and that's very much where TMG Corp fits in. It fits in as a, you know, as a potentially critical enabling technology for a whole range of, uh, of activities around the intelligence cycle. Gotcha. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's, I, I would have never thought about it from that state, you know, but it, it makes sense in terms of you don't want to let, your vulnerabilities be exposed. So I imagine that, you know, when we were talking about hurdles to how you guys do what you do, you have to be very, uh, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very, not, not political, but you have to be very gentle in how you go about pursuing needs and trying to connect needs and as well as gathering information, right? Um, because you can't, one, you may not have all of the, the sensitivity of the information. So you're, you're having to, 
leverage, you know, analysts or, you know, folks of that nature and how you go about making those connections. So that's, that's a, that's a really interesting hurdle that I would have never have thought of. So that's, that's really interesting. Very cool. Yeah. And, and look at our, um, you know, uh, nations, organizations, um, potential adversaries out there, uh, you know, are actively trying to determine what those gaps are. Um, and so it's really important that, uh, you know, that we remain cognizant of that and that, um, you know, that we, we apply, you know, knowledge in a, um, you know, in a, in a manner that, you know, protects the overall, um, capability, I guess. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, so Adam, if, if our listeners are interested in connecting with you on social media or, or however else, just to, to understand what you guys are doing and connect with what you're doing at Levin Hall, um, how, how can they go about finding you guys? Uh, LinkedIn's probably the best way. So I've got a LinkedIn profile, um, which we can put in, I guess, in the, uh, under, underneath in the, uh, <laughs> in the thing. Um, <laughs> we're not, we're not uh, huge communicators on social media. We, we, um, uh, um, yeah, it's just not, it's not, a, it's not a thing we proactively work on, but yeah, we've got a website, levenhall.com. If you're interested, it's uh it's a work in progress. Uh, <laughs> uh, currently going through a, a logo and redesign, which is, uh, which is pretty exciting. I, I like doing that stuff, but, um, yeah, so levenhall.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, we've got our own page on LinkedIn. Uh, we're, we're not on Twitter or um, all the others. So. Yeah, it makes sense that you know, given what you guys are doing, you don't need a massive social social media campaign to to get things accomplished. So, uh, well, that, I mean, currently, I mean, look, I, that, <laughs> I'm not remaining stagnant on that. You never know, right? I've got, yeah. I've got uh, a long history of not wanting to do that. So, uh, I've got to go overcome my own personal, uh, um, you know, inner demons, I guess, inner restrictions, inner constraints, <laughs> inner, you know, whatever. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. Well, Adam, I know I speak for all of us here, Drew and I, all of us at TMG Corp. We, we truly appreciate your time and we're extremely grateful that, that you joined us here and, you know, obviously we look forward to, to keeping up with you and, and talking soon and just appreciate you you coming on. Yeah, no worries, guys. And uh, and back at you, I think what you guys are doing is, uh, is really critical uh, technology. It's a huge enabler for, you know, not only national security, but a whole bunch of other, you know, edge computing and data center solutions. And, you know, happy to be working with you on uh, pushing you into the right spaces. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks, man. Well, that's going to do it for us here today on The Edge of TMG Corp Production. Don't forget to subscribe anywhere you pick up your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review there. You can also find us at www.theedgetmgcore.com. So thanks so much. We'll catch you next time. And remember, The Edge will go as far as you take it. So thanks, Adam. Appreciate it.